everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the My Own Minds podcast. As always, I am your host, George, and today I'm here with Stuart Wade. Hi, Stuart. How are you? Hi George, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I was saying to you, it's been a it's been a a long day. I feel kind of you know when your brain just feels fuzzy. I feel like I'm I'm at high risk of saying something stupid. Um, so hopefully <laughs> I don't. <laughs> well, we, you can always edit that out later. It's cool. Yeah, that's true. That's the beauty of of, of it being my podcast. I can I can sound however I want. <laughs> um, yeah, thank Absolutely. you so much for, for coming on uh, today, Stuart. We met at the Detach the Stigma event that we did um, for Marilyn Okoro, and it was very interesting. And your story was was so um, cool. And I feel like we didn't have enough time to properly delve into it on that event. So I, I just I wanted to get mm-hmm. you on, talk about what you do, talk about you know how everything um, kind of yeah, went for you. Um, and one of the one of the first things I wanted to talk about is I know that you were uh, very successful in combat sports. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I I started training in Taekwondo when I was six years old, and my parents told me that I, I was being bullied at the time. I don't remember that. Um, it's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one of the um, one of the instigators, really, for getting me into martial arts. Um, all I remember from the time is that my dad was a huge Bruce Lee fan, and so I remember even from that young an age watching Bruce Lee movies with him. You know, yeah. um, Enter the Dragon being my favorite, and so you know he became a bit of an idol for me. And obviously, young kids see, see this guy kicking ass on on TV and stuff, you know? Um, So you want to emulate him. And so, yeah, I started in Taekwondo and I started training and grading in Taekwondo, but I didn't really like competing at the time. Um, I wasn't a fan. Um, Yeah, it just didn't didn't gel with me at that point, but I was good at at Taekwondo, you know, I, I performed well, I picked up the techniques well. And so I, I competed a little bit when I was when I was six, seven, eight, nine years old, um, but not very much. After I got my black belt, I moved to a different club um, for the only reason being that a group of us started together. We graded together all the way through. We got our black belts together mm-hmm. and then they all left and quit. And I was the only black belt in essentially a class full of white belts because there weren't enough students to have different graded classes. And so, unfortunately, I left that club. Um, Once I moved to the other club, that was a slightly different style of Taekwondo. And I then started competing more as I got a little bit older and got into it a little bit more. um, And again, started with the small interclub competitions, progressed on to some regional stuff, then started competing in the nationals. And by the age of 13, I believe, I represented Great Britain for the first time. And uh, that was at at the French Open over in Paris and uh, didn't quite go to plan, but it was a great experience nonetheless. And since then, I've been competing consistently in, in the nationals and representing England and Great Britain pretty much year in, year out from the age of sort of 15, 16. Um, yeah, and I've, I've competed in various different countries and uh, I've, well, I've won four world titles along the way, three European titles and 20 British titles of various iterations. Wow. Um, 
so yeah yeah it's it's been fun which, yeah. which is the which is the title or or maybe yeah which one which one means the most to you hmm. um it's a good question um i would say probably the world title that i won in sicily in 2011 because for that one i had to beat one of my friends but he's he's also been one of my closest rivals over the years mm. and we've kind of competed against each other numerous times and it's all you know there's always banter and stuff there and he he used to like to rub in the fact that he'd beaten me more times than i'd beaten him but my once i won that one my counter was yeah but i beat you in the world so <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah you might have might have beaten me in the nationals and stuff but i won the big one so yeah. you know yeah. did but, you uh, did you finish yeah, him with the, that probably the one did you finish him with the crane technique from cry kid <laughs> uh unfortunately not no but uh, <laughs> but i did have uh, have my uniform on that do, did look like pajamas at the time so uh so yeah there's, there's <laughs> that that similarity i suppose <laughs> yeah yeah um I, that's kind of my i did i did um Japanese jiu-jitsu when I was younger so I, I have like a little bit of experience with martial arts but I never like competed or anything and mm -hmm. so karate kids kind of the, yeah. the the most I've experience I've got <laughs> um so you you mentioned yeah. how um you, you know I know you said you don't really remember it much but you were you were kind of picked on at school and that might have been one of the reasons why you started um do you think there was some kind of mm -hmm. connection there with um your ability to win world titles or you know, be good at martial arts and and kind of I guess proving the bullies wrong or you know showing that you're you shouldn't be bullied or you don't think there was anything there with that i i do yeah um i even even now i still have a little bit of perfectionist tendencies mm. and and i want to kind of i want to show people how good i am you know and so i think that was probably something that that spurred me on in you know in the early days without consciously realizing and uh obviously be, being young it's not something that you think about but um but yeah it was certainly with hindsight a motivating factor because because of the the bullying stuff and having low self-esteem and that that kind of thing mm. this was something that i was good at boosted my confidence and my self-esteem but i wanted it to spread out into other areas of my life i didn't want it to just be a kind of trait uh, sorry a state confidence in that one aspect mm. i wanted it to become a trait thing and just mm. be confident all, all around you know and that is that is one great thing about martial arts it does boost kids particularly the confidence massively in themselves and and then yes that does then begin to grow outside of the the martial arts club you know so yeah yeah it's it's a great thing yeah yeah um and for the people at home who don't know can you explain what um trait and state what the differences are between them sure sure so let's say let, we'll take the confidence attribute so having state confidence is when you have a particular level of confidence in a particular thing that you do or you have or are so for me for example using this example i would be really confident when training and competing in martial arts but then outside of that not so much the the kind of lower self-esteem would then take over outside of that arena having the trait confidence that would be across the board yeah. You know, you'd have a certain yeah. level of confidence across most of your life. Essentially, you'd be gen generally confident in yourself. And so some people, particularly with having suffered bullying, don't have a lot of confidence generally. And by doing a particular activity where they can build up some state confidence, that can then, with time and, and consistency, spread out into a more of a, a universal trait. Yeah. Um, certainly in my experience. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's something I kind of resonate with. I definitely resonate with the, the idea that, um, 
yeah, my I had a lot of confidence in certain situations, especially for me when I was really young, it was playing rugby. You know, when I was on the rugby team, when I was on the rugby pitch, I was one of the biggest kids in school. So, you know, I just, I was good at it because I was big. Um, so I felt so confident, but then I was so not confident, so insecure when I was away from the pitch. Um, yeah, I also, I also resonate with the idea of that. You mentioned how maybe there's still a part of you that wants to prove people wrong and wants to, prove that you are good enough and prove and i i definitely have that i you know, i was I, I don't think i was ever well actually i was i was picked on a bit at school um but i was also you know i after my injury and i and i gained a significant amount of weight after it i was definitely kind of treated differently because i'd gained so much weight and i think you know a part of my eating disorder and a part of my issues was me being like oh i need to you know i, need, I can't let them be right like you know there's a part of me that was like i can't let these people be right about me because then, then that voice inside my head that's telling me I'm nothing, and these people who are treating me like I'm nothing, they're like they're both going to be right, and I can't, I couldn't deal with that. Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense, and uh, yeah, I can. I, that certainly resonates a little bit with me as well. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, last time, last time we spoke, kind of talking about the um, disordered eating and stuff. Last time we spoke at the um, Marilyn Okora's Detached the Stigma. Uh, event you again we didn't we didn't really have much time to talk into it massively but you you spoke about the fact that you think you had some experience with disordered eating can you tell me a bit about that Mm. absolutely so for for example um when i again when i was young training in martial arts i was always a little bit on the bigger side you know i've all i've always enjoyed my food you know i still do um but, uh, but yeah, I was always on the slightly, slightly chunkier side. Um, but it never knowingly bothered me, um, kind of growing up that I'm aware of. Um, and it, I certainly was never, was never bullied due to weight or any, anything like that. I didn't think that I was overweight particularly. I just wasn't as lean as I was, would have liked to have been. Then when I... Went to university, I got a little bit obsessive with my eating and exercise. And that, with hindsight, was due to confidence issues. And and in all honesty, like, I didn't really want to be at university at that time. I'm glad I went, but, and I made, made some good mates and I got a degree out of it, but with hindsight, it wasn't the right time. I probably should have waited a little bit um, because I wasn't happy there. And that that kind of obsessive um, calorie restriction and carbohydrate restriction that I implemented with myself, in addition to the training I was doing, it, it reduced my weight, you know, considerably, but not in a healthy way. And my flatmates at the time used to refer to um, my moods as, as having diet rage because I would, I would have such a short fuse and I would, I would flip out, not physically, I, I would never lash out physically, but I would rant and rave and F and blind till the cows came home about you name it, whatever was the subject. And Again, with hindsight, looking back, it's not a good way to be, you know, and I couldn't, I wouldn't allow myself to have a balanced diet because I was thinking, well, if I, if I do, I'm, I'm going to put weight on and that would knock my confidence even more how I was thinking at the time. And I never thought of it as, as disordered eating or an eating disorder, quote unquote, but looking back, it was in, in a way, it wasn't necessarily your stereotypical anorexia, bulimia, or, you know, other kinds of labels, mm-hmm. but it was disordered eating certainly. And yeah. it was massively impactful on my life in a negative way. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it, you, you sound a lot like myself from my, in my experience um, with the kind of, um, yeah, really restrictive eating. Um, but also, you know, I imagine you, you were outwardly, 
you outwardly looked very healthy. You know, you probably you're going to the gym all the time and and training all the time and, and eating in this you know um, air quotes clean manner. Um, you know, you would I imagine you looked outwardly great. You know, you know kind of the stereotypical mm-hmm. great. Um, so it's it's hard for for you to be kind of you. Know, I don't I don't. Um, it doesn't um, shock me that you found it hard to, or at least you didn't realize that it was some form of disorder eating because if you look that way if you look muscular nobody will ever assume that there's something wrong like that and that's part of the reason why i started my minds was because people like us people who you know um go, go to the gym and and look and seem outwardly healthy can actually have stuff going on as well and um, so is that something you 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 kind of agree with oh 100 yeah and it, it's kind of long been in the public consciousness about women have you know having no sorry let me rephrase that women feeling the pressure to look a certain way or be a certain weight whatever it might be you, you use your own descriptions and terminology but it's not so much a common topic of conversation amongst men because you know you're supposed to be the man and uh, you know you stiff up a lip and you don't you don't say anything if you're if you're struggling and you know you grit you know grin and bear it or grit your teeth and carry on and uh, so yeah i think it's most likely more common than a lot of people would necessarily think mm. but until it becomes more commonly and widely accepted and more people speak out about it it's there's going to be that bit of stigma to it so um yeah it's it's a very interesting topic for for certain yeah yeah and it seems to be as well that pete you know um we're talking about you know, being bullied and this kind of um way of of showing that you're worthy it seems in guys as well often we we attach um masculinity or you know what we see as masculine to a certain body type and then you know we also achieve you know being a guy we think being masculine equals kind of um meaning and and being kind of um you know what's the word i'm for worthy of, of being being a person you know if you to be masculine is to be worthy um so do you think that was like for me that my the way I trained and the way I looked was so attached to my self worth because it was what I deemed as masculine? Is that something you resonate with as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, even even more nuanced than that, when you are a competitive athlete, you put even more pressure on that, you know, because. You know, I'm, I'm competing, I'm training regularly. I should look like, you know, a stereotypical body beautiful or whatever. And that's not the case, yeah. <laughs> you know. And but, but yeah, it's yeah. I think I think there's there's the external pressure from from others and you know society and particular ideologies. But then there's also that internal pressure to look that way as well. And uh, yeah, it's it's multifaceted. That's for yeah. sure. What What do you think? In what do you think um, created that internal pressure for you? Like, what do you think influenced you in that way? Me personally, yeah. um, it's a good question. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. Um, I think yeah, I'd probably be be thinking out loud saying it, but I think my teammates and training partners that I grew up with, um, they were a leaner build than, than me. And so perhaps subconsciously I, you know, compared myself to them and saw the things that they were doing and the titles that they were winning. And perhaps, that developed some of that internal pressure because it was never pressure from them, you know, or my coaches or my parents or, you know, whoever there, there wasn't any of that. I think that was predominantly internal that I was comparing and which again, I've, I've adopted this, this phrase a little bit um, 
for after seeing it online somewhere. Um, comparison is the thief of joy. And it's, it's very true because as soon as you're comparing yourself or some particular attribute you have to something outside of you, you're looking actively for problems. And there's always going to be somebody more attractive or leaner or fitter, you name it. There's always going to be. We're, we're on a massive planet with 8 billion people. You know, if you, if you look for something hard enough, you're going to find it. Yeah. And so I think... I think for me personally, because of those underlying confidence issues, that maybe led into me comparing myself to my peers. Yeah. And I think that perhaps led into that internal pressure a little bit. Yeah. And that, and that makes sense. Um, it's something I resonate with as well. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I'm interested. I think for me as well, you know, mine was kind of bodybuilding and, and, that, that kind of side of things but your circle as well gets so small and everyone around you is is like you everyone around you is eating in a certain way everyone around you is is training in a certain way everyone around you is competitive everyone around you is perfectionist so you know i think I, you often hear people say and I'm, i've been guilty of saying you know, just find something else that you can do find something else but you know, once you're deep in that, it's like how like how are you expected to do that? Because not only do you have to go against what your mind's telling you, you've got to go against what everything everybody else you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. It's not until you've walked that path that you start to see and perceive that maybe the way that they're doing it is not right for me, and vice versa. You know, you have to kind of forge your own way with it. Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. It does take a lot of introspection to uh, to come to some of these conclusions, and then even more motivation, consistency, and resilience to actually keep going mm. on that path that's right for you. You know. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm really glad you said that because you know I think you know, like I said, people get into such a small um, like social circle, and, and everyone around them is telling them to do stuff. And I think, you know, someone like you who's won multiple championships and things, you know, someone listening to this podcast who's maybe in that, in the fighting circle and is in that position might hear, you know, hear you say that and think, oh shit, okay, maybe, you know, Stuart's really successful in this and he's talking about that. So maybe I need to think about that as well. Um, so yeah, I'm really glad, I'm really glad you said that. So obviously, you know, um, you said you still have these kind of feelings and, and thoughts to it, to a point, um, so, you know, some of them are still there. Um, how have you progressed from being in that that place to to being in a in a better place now? What is it that you did to to kind of yeah um, organize that in your head? Sure. Well, I got educated essentially um, while I, I was at university. I was doing a sports science degree, and so there was physiology nutrition, biomechanics, sports psychology, and then some other modules that were were related, but not as sciencey, if you like. Um, that's the technical term. Um, but so outside of my degree course, I decided while I was at university that I wanted to become a personal trainer. And for me, it was about educating myself how best to train, how best to eat, a, you know, a balanced, healthy diet. It was learning that stuff so that I could implement it myself and then help other people with it. Because um, there's, a, there's a, a memory coach online who's, who's quite prolific called Jim Quick. And one of, the, one of the things that he espouses is when you teach something, you get to learn it twice. And so that is something that I adopted. I taught myself through my studies and the practical stuff. And then when actually I got out there qualified working with clients, I'm then reiterating it to myself and reinforcing it neurologically in my mind and then in my behaviors as well. So that was the, the starting point for me. Once I finished my degree at university, I, I booked on a personal trainer's qualification straight away completed that and I went self-employed a few months after and uh, 
I've been doing that ever since. So that's that was my initial progression through uh, from learning about this stuff for myself to help me implement it and get a better grip on on this stuff for me personally, and then to help other people with it. And then a few years later, that's when the the hypnotherapy came and knock in, and uh, and that developed things even further. Yeah, and I, I do want to um, kind of get onto the the hypnotherapy soon because it's not something I know very much about. Um, but yeah, that that's that's interesting, and I, I definitely agree with the 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 is it Jim Quick. Did you say his name was Jim Quick? Um, that's agree. right. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. With, I agree with his his mantra because um, yeah, I I teach about uh, a lot of the stuff that I talk on here. You know, um, through the charity First Steps. Um, we developed like a CPD course and I, and I help um, teach that. And it's, you know, the things on in that course are the things that I understand the best because, yeah, because like you say, you know, you, you, when you teach it, you get to learn it twice. And I, th- I think as well, you know, it, when you offer people to ask you questions about something, it ha- helps you develop your um, opinion on something. It's, it's something I um, often talk about. And I think, I think um, I mentioned it to, to Marilyn that, before that event that you know i'm i think i do better under pressure with questions like not not knowing what the question is going to be because because it makes me think and it makes me develop my opinion and it makes me um yeah come up with something and and yeah you are obviously brilliant as well because a lot of the questions i've been asking you today haven't been what what i'd actually written down for you um so yeah i think i think it is it is really um yeah, it's a really good point and is something that I will probably try and do more of. I'll start trying to teach other things that I'm, I want to learn more about. So hypnotherapy. I know literally nothing about it. Um, so I'm going to start off with, can you in some roundabout way, tell me what it is? Sure, sure. Well, the word hypno comes from the Greek word hypnos, meaning sleep. So essentially it is sleep therapy, but it's not as literal as that. Hypnotherapy is usually facilitated by by a therapist, so me, with a client, ideally in person, but the uh, the pandemic has has shown to me that it can work through Zoom very well as well. Um, Yeah, it's usually facilitated by me, and that person then will go into an altered state of consciousness. And that, and that sounds a bit out there and stuff, but it's not, it's not with the use of any, um, any external agents, any drugs, alcohol, and nothing like that. It's simply by starting to relax the body, you start to activate your parasympathetic nervous system. Your heart rate starts to slow down the breathing rate starts to slow down, the blood pressure starts to slow down. In accordance with all this, the brain waves change. Okay, so if you were to measure somebody's brain waves with, with an um, EEG, when they're consciously aware, awake, talking like we are now, perhaps, they would be somewhere in the beta brainwave state range. And it's, it's quite a big range uh, of amplitude from sort of 12 to 30-ish hertz. And so in that range, you can be in high beta, you can be somewhere in the middle, you can be in low beta, depending on your level of arousal at that time. That's your typical brainwave state. And when you start to relax, like I've, like I've discussed previously uh, in hypnotherapy, your brainwaves slow down. And they go from a beta state into an alpha state, first of all. So the frequency slows a little bit. It's when you start to relax. It's between 8 and 12 hertz on an EEG. And if you've ever seen somebody else or caught yourself kind of daydreaming before, you know, just kind of staring off into space in your own little world. Most times. A lot of the times (laughs) in the day, to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. You've got to own it. Um, but but yeah, that, that is the beginnings of a hypnotic trance. You are Your brainwaves are entering into an alpha state. And so you're aware of your surroundings. You're aware of what's around you, but it doesn't bother you. You're 
kind of focused inwardly, not outwardly. As you relax more, you then start to go into a theta state, which typically is from somewhere around four to eight hertz. And this is a state of quite deep relaxation. And this is where the magic happens in hypnosis, in hypnotherapy. When someone, a client is in a theta brainwave state, their subconscious mind kind of comes to the fore. The conscious mind is quietened down. It's gone, it's gone away. There's not the critical thinking faculties there now. When they're in this state, they're very suggestible. You can't, I can't, I can't make someone or induce them to do something that they don't want to do. I'm not taking control of their mind or anything like that. But if I'm saying something that's in alignment with what they are wanting to get out of the session, and I have to use my words very carefully because there is a certain way of, of speaking in, in hypnotherapy, and it's not the, the typical monotone, you are very sleepy. It's not that. It's that in, in that state, the mind, mind responds to positive suggestion. So if I was to say to someone, um, you, are, you are going to stop smoking, for example, in that state, their subconscious mind doesn't hear the stop smoking or the going to. All it hears is smoking because it only responds to positive suggestion, not the negative suggestion. Okay. It's like if um, young kids are great at it. If you, if a young kid is misbehaving in some way and you, you say, don't do that. Chances are they'll probably laugh and keep doing it because the mind at that point is operating subconsciously. That's why they can have, you know, imaginary friends and stuff. They haven't developed the critical faculties that we have as adults because they're not at that age yet when that develops after sort of nine, 10 years old. And so they respond to the positive suggestion, which is essentially keep doing whatever you're doing. That's where we work in hypnotherapy. There are two more brainwave states, the Delta state, which is when you're fast asleep at night, dead to the world. We don't get to that point because of the 90 minute sleep cycles. And then there is a gamma state, which is a high, high state of arousal well above beta. We don't, we don't go into that state either. Typically the work is done in the alpha and theta state. Um, yeah, I, I hope that answers the question. I realize I've gone on a little bit there. No, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Hopefully that. I'm, I'm glad you went yeah, into the details. Elaborate. It helps me, it helps me under, understand it a bit more. So I guess I feel like I have so many questions. Um, first of all, do you, do we know why the, the positive, why, why only positive suggestion seems to work? Is there, is there like a theoretical reason why that is, or it just seems to be the case? I'll be honest. I, I don't personally know as, mm. as far as I'm aware, there isn't necessarily a theoretical model as to why I think it was probably developed anecdotally by, by the early pioneers yeah. of, of hypnotherapy and, and, in their actual sessions. And that mm -hmm. then became the, the standard model. Um, yeah, the, the brain will, it will take on board whatever you tell it. Yeah. And repetition and emotion are key with it. And so, yeah, because we're hardwired to look out for danger, you know, the, the brain wants to survive and replicate. That's it. So anything that, that it perceives as a threat, um, it, it's on the lookout for. And so if we if we say something negative, that can then in, increase the levels of stress and anxiety in the brain. And so, uh, in essence, make someone worse. Yeah. Um, which is not really what we're after in <laughs> hypnotherapy. There are certain techniques where you might use um, aversive suggestions where you are deliberately inserting a negative suggestion in order to have a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. For example, smoking is a great example for it. If, if someone is, is a, a smoker and they want to stop, but they're having trouble, they can't do it on their own and the positive suggestions aren't necessarily having the effect. What I might say to them is 
if there's something that they really dislike or something that's disgusting, you know, let, let's say, you know, nobody like nobody likes vomiting or, or being sick. So I might say in in a in an aversive suggestion for a, a, for smoking cessation, every time you touch the cigarette to your lips, you will feel the overwhelming urge to vomit immediately. That's an aversive suggestion because it's it's inducing a negative on them, but for a positive outcome because they want to stop smoking. So if anything's going to stop them smoking, it's that urge to be sick when they put the cigarette to their lips. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so it, it, it's, so are, it's funny. Sorry to put in quickly, but yeah. um, I literally my own right. one of my only experiences of um, hypnosis. Now this is kind of leads me on to another question, um, but I, I want you to finish your statement first. But my only experience of hypnosis ever was um, once when I was uh, where were we? I went on holiday anyway with my friends, and there was like a, a performing hypnotist, and my my friend's dad went up, and um, he managed to get like hypnotized, and he asked him to help to see if he could help him stop smoking and he literally did that exact thing um and that that's kind of where i was ever the only time i've ever seen it and and we, we were walking back and um he yeah he got his, his packet of cigarettes out and like put one to his lips and he, i remember him just throwing the cigarettes and just like heaving um because he just like he couldn't stand it um but yeah so yeah. it's funny funny you say that because i've literally had that exact experience of someone i know yeah, that that is uh, that is quite a coincidence, but it yeah. illustrates the point perfectly. Uh, yeah, that, that that's it. So um, I, I've I've kind of forgotten the in, initial question, to be honest. But, um, but yeah. I've got well, I've got another Hopefully. question now. Then I've got another question, um, which is maybe a bit off topic, but I'm I'm interested. Is there like a rivalry, or is there some kind of um, sort of some kind of I don't know, yeah, thing there between hypnotherapists like yourself? And then like the performing hypnotists, like, is there like a, do you not like each other or is there like a, I don't know. Is there a, is there a thing there? For me personally, not at all. Um, they are two sides of the same coin. The, the, me the mechanics and the processes of a stage hypnotist works the same as a hypnotherapist. Mm. It's just a different setting with a different goal. Um, you want for, for the for the stage performance. It's it's about entertainment. You know, you want people who are going to be up for a laugh, and so they're willing to put themselves out there initially. So there's already that certain level of buy-in and rapport there because they're willing, you know, willing to to do something silly. And then you want the people that are very suggestible as well, and that's usually elicited by some kind of suggestibility test on the audience. So, for example. Um, the stage hypnotist might do a magnetic hand test on the audience, you know, get them to close their eyes, hands out here. Imagine you've got magnets in your hands, see what they do and all this. And the people whose hands come together the quickest or most in that duration, those people are typically the most suggestible. So they would be the best subjects for some kind of quick hypnotic induction on stage and the subsequent chicken dance or, or whatever. <laughs> The mechanics are, say, are the same with hypnotherapy. We want, we want the client to have a, a level of trust and rapport with, with myself as the therapist because that's if they don't trust me, we've got a hurdle to get over there. You know, they have to fully trust in the process and trust me as a, as a person and a therapist to help facilitate them through that. Um, and then I would... I would look at their levels of levels of suggestibility, and that might be some kind of little suggestibility test, like the magnetic hand thing. But instead of using it to then use that person up for a particular thing, like on stage, what I would do then is I would analyze how they performed that little test, and that would then inform my approach in part as to how I would speak to them. Mm. For example, some people, some people are more responsive to an authoritarian approach. So like a military person, mm. they're used to having orders given to them and following them. So that person, I would tell them what to do in hypnosis and their mind would take it on board and, and do it. Mm -hmm. Some other people are a bit less agreeable and 
want to think their own way or they might be a bit more analytical. And so with that person, I might adopt a more permissive approach where I'd give them options and not say directly, you are going to do this, but it might be, you could do this or you could do that. And there's different, so there's different uses of language that how will literally best speak to the client that you're working with. That's, that's really, oh yeah, it's very interesting. Um, what, what kind of, what kind of clients do you work with? Cause obviously you have your athlete background. Do you, do you work with athletes much or yeah? What's your clients? Like? I, I do. Athletes are, are my kind of main demographic now. Um, I, I previously been kind of generalized working with, with all sorts of issues, you know, smoking, cessation, anxiety, whatever. Now I'm, I'm focusing mainly on the athletes. I'll never turn someone away if, if they need help and it's within my remit, um, whatever their background or issue is. If I've got the time and, and like I say, it's in, in my wheelhouse, I will help. Uh, but I predominantly help athletes to overcome any issues with anxiety, help them with their performance in their sport and then any issues with weight as well, mm. um, which may be related to the sport or may not be. Those are the areas that I specialize in and, and that's the population that I work with predominantly. Yeah. Yeah. So can you take me through a, um, you know, so you, an athlete comes to you and, and says they, that's a good question. Can you do it online? Like with obviously with COVID and everything, can you do it? Can you do it through a, a call online? Yeah, absolutely. A bit like, like this, I, I would use zoom. I have been doing this with clients and as long as the client has that trust in me and a decent internet connection <laughs> there's no reason why it can't work just as well i had a, a brilliant client recently who uh, was a and again because it's all confidential obviously there are no no real details with it yeah. but this particular athlete that i was working with recently that was all online he was in another part of the uk to me and he, he had been a referral through a business network that I'm a part of. Mm -hmm. And so geographically, it wasn't going to work to get us in the same room. And so we did it through Zoom like this. And he trusted me. He trusted the process from, from the explanation that I gave. And I do a free initial consultation anyway. That's, you know, the person is under no obligation to sign up for paid sessions then or, or any further sessions. That's a, about an hour. And we, we try and get to the root of the issue through that. He understood a bit more about me and my background, how this hypnotherapy process could, could help him. And we went forward with sessions online and it worked tremendously. We finished a few weeks ago and he's, yeah, he's on, top form now and uh it's it's great to see i love it that must be so nice to see client i imagine that's kind of the reason anyone does like therapy jobs and stuff you know to see the person you work with then you know, reap the benefits of of the stuff you've done with them um so yeah so t t talk me through kind of you've already kind of touched on on bits but yeah talk me through how a session actually goes so from you know from them walking through your door or from them obviously coming onto the the zoom call what what would happen sure so in a in a proper session they would either yeah come through the door or be greeted on zoom and just you know typical exchange of pleasantries and then once we've done that i will have a plan already from our prior consultation and my notes I will have a plan of what I'm going to do with that person, what I'm going to talk about with them in the session. The first thing then is for that person to make themselves comfortable. And that as well is including the temperature because, because typically they will be seated or lying still for a period of time when they're in hypnosis. Sometimes they can get cold. So we need to make sure, and, and that can be distracting and, and again, cause some level of arousal, bring them out of that theta or alpha brainwave state, which is not what we want. So we want to make sure that they're comfortable with the temperature if they have a blanket or, or a jumper or something that they can put on just in case they do get cold. And outside of that, like, not like today, it's absolutely red hot. Um, we want to make sure that they're cool enough at the same time. 
So yeah, they can be seated or lying down, whichever they prefer. It's, I, I don't stipulate, it's wherever they would feel the most comfortable. After that, the first thing that I will do is I will get the client to focus on their breathing. So initially we're bringing the focus from the external world, internal. Slow the breathing down. And I won't necessarily stipulate how to breathe either. It won't necessarily be an in through your nose, out through your mouth kind of thing. Just whatever works for them. The only thing that I would say is to try and breathe deeper and slower. And then as they start to do that, I might either give suggestions about closing their eyes, or I might just say, you can close your eyes whenever you're ready. And oftentimes they just do. And so that then begins the induction. Okay, so the, the hypno hypnotic induction where, as I alluded to earlier, the heart rate starts to slow, the blood pressure starts to reduce a little bit, the parasympathetic nervous system starts to activate a little bit more, the sympathetic starts to decrease. And then the brain waves start that slowing down process from beta through to alpha and then theta. Typically, again, depending on the person, it might take maybe 10 minutes or so for them to, to fully relax into that theta brainwave state. Some people who, who we would term somnambulists, when you, when you see the stage stuff, when they go sleep, that's real but only in a certain small percentage of the population that are so suggestible. If you say that with authority, they'll do it. Most people don't fall into that category. And so it takes a little bit of time to just relax and calm the body. So that, and, and everybody's different. I treat every client differently. So what I might say during an induction to one person will be completely different to somebody else because I want to say what resonates with them. You know, if I'm talking to you, George, and trying to get you to relax, um, I might not start talking in an induction about golf or martial arts or some, some sport that you're not into or something that you're not into. I might talk about rugby, you know, and but tailor it to you. I might talk about your favourite team and the emotions that you experience watching that team and how calm you feel afterwards etc etc yeah so i tailor it to the individual then as we get through the induction then we get into the kind of meat of the session where they're in that theta state they're open to suggestion the brain is primed ready to be neurologically rewired in a different path in a different direction and so then in that in that time and space i will give them the suggestions that will hopefully facilitate that rewiring and synaptic pruning of the old negative thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Then as the session progresses, I'll do a bit of ego strengthening with them as well. Sometimes that comes after the induction. Sometimes it comes at the end because when you're, nobody likes to lose things. And so even if it's something negative that's been afflicting this person, that's still a, a part of them. And so if you, if you take that away, they might start looking for something to fill that hole, you know? Mm -hmm. And so by giving them some ego strengthening, we're essentially kind of backfilling that hole with some good stuff, improving the self-esteem subconsciously. So that then when I begin the re-alert process at the end of the session, and that might, that will be different depending on the person. Um, I might count up, I might, take them up an imaginary staircase where when they get to the top there, they can be wide awake. I, again, I tailor it to the person. Yeah. But when yeah. we get to that point, I re-alert them they, or they re-alert themselves under my direction. And then I will typically give them a few minutes to just recalibrate and fully come back to conscious awareness. Because if you, if you wake up from sleep in the morning or if you, you know, if you had a nap and it takes you a little bit to wake up and you're a little bit half asleep and a bit disorientated or you need to stretch, same thing here. So I give them the space to do that. I might remain quiet. I might give them some more positive suggestion in that state because they are still suggestible when they're in that state. I might completely talk about something different and ask them what they're going to be doing afterwards 
or what they had for dinner last night or whatever it might be, because that sometimes can induce a state of hypnotic amnesia as well, where if, if we've worked with something traumatic and we don't want them to then bring that from the subconscious into the conscious when they finish the session, I might then distract them. And so then it, it, it induces that amnesia. So they don't remember what happened in the session and they're just thinking about what I'm asking them now. Does that make sense? So typically that's how a session will go. And then we'll plan, you know, book in the diary for, for the next session if we haven't already. Yep. And then I will bid them farewell. And uh, I usually give them some homework exercises as well. Something that, to reinforce what we've done in the session. Yeah, that was my, that was my next question was... Um... Because, for example, with with my friend's dad, he obviously just had the one thing, and that it kind of worked for like a week, um, where he, he had this thing, but then it kind of faded. And I was going to say, is is this something where do you have to give them exercises that they do away from the session? You don't have to, but I do. Yeah, and I, I okay. stipulate that I, I will not work with anybody for a single session. Uh, it's a minimum of four sessions with me, because if you think about it. <laughs> we are we're laying the foundations and building on that each week you don't go to again just to touch on the weight thing you don't go to the gym one time if you have a, a certain amount of weight that you want to lose you know asterisk in a healthy way mentally and physically etc but you don't go the once and then expect it to come off and for it to stay that way it's consistency and by giving them the homework tasks, in my opinion, it's helping them to reinforce it. I always use the analogy of, again, with the gym, because it's my background. Mm -hmm. If you went to the gym every day and did bicep curls for however many repetitions, however, however many sets, your biceps are going to respond. They're going to get some hypertrophy there. They're going to grow. There's going to be a stronger neurological signal to recruit more muscle fibers because you're putting it under strain continually. The body adapts. Mm. And so we need to keep on building on these new neurological wirings in the brain to really reinforce them. Yeah. And with that comes the atrophy process of the old thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, those old neural patterns in the brain because they're not getting used anymore, they atrophy. The same way as if you were bed bound with an injury, for example, you might lose muscle mass because the body's not needing to be moving around. It's the same thing. You, the body wants homeostasis, it wants to be efficient. And so if you've got these old neural path, pathways in the brain here, it doesn't need them anymore. We've got this new one over here. And so it will go through synaptic pruning. And it will get rid of them because they're, they're old and they're not there anymore. It's not like you're um, removing the memory. You'll still know, you'll still have that memory, but there won't be the emotion. There won't be the feeling. There won't be the intensity attached to that anymore. And it won't impact on, the, on that person's life anymore. So, yeah, long story short, I give them homework tasks and ask them to do them. I can't make them, but I, I explain it in a way where it's motivational for them to do it because it is for their benefit. It's not just me, you know, trying to be a teacher to them. It's, yeah. Uh, give yeah. Them to do, you know. It's kind of like, yeah, like your, yeah, your analogy with, um, if you want to you know, affect the way your body looks, lose weight, gain weight, you know, gain muscle, whatever, you don't just go to, you don't do go to the gym once you don't, you know, eat it a certain way once it has to be a kind of consistent thing to get the, to get the, the change that you're you're after which which makes makes total sense and i suppose it makes sense that it would be the same with the brain you know you can make that you can have that sudden change to it, that sudden impact and um, but then that person has to consistently kind of practice what their their brain's preaching i suppose otherwise they can they can start to kind of fall back into where they were before if they're still acting as if they're not confident even though they now feel a little bit more confident for example does that make sense that's right yes absolutely and, and that's the thing environmental factors are so big as well whether you realize it or not, you are influenced by your environment, whether that's the people that you're around all the time or even the physical environment, the house that you live in. You know, if you're wanting to affect a positive change in your life, but then you go back to the same place where all this negative stuff had happened, there's a lot of triggers around there that the brain will maybe put two and two together and make 15. But it, it could undo the good work that you've done unless you do the necessary work in the interim. 
And then the next time you, you know, you or the client sees me, we can then build and push on a little bit more and progress. And that's the way to do it because we don't want to be just recapping everything. We want to progress on. We've got a goal that we're looking to achieve here and we need to go about the plan consistently in order to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you. Yeah. Your, your environment makes such a difference. I think it's, it's, it's as easy as, um, obviously it doesn't fix everything, but, um, a good way of, of sharing this is it's as easy as when you clean your room or something like you, you genuinely feel less stressed and you genuinely feel so much like better. And it, it is, it just shows how much your environment can have an impact. And for people at home who are thinking that's a load of shit, clean your room, clean my room will make a difference. Just do it once and see how you feel. Cause I, I thought the exact same thing. I thought that's a load of shite. Like there's no way that's going to make a difference, but it really does. Like when you sit in your room and it's clean, you think mm. like you just feel different. Yeah. It's one of the things that Dr. Jordan Peterson espouses, you know, they, controversial psychologist from Canada, he, he said, clean your room. You know, that's, that's your thing. It's get your house in order. That's, that's uh, a big thing because yeah, it, it does. And whether it's, whether it's a feng shui thing or if it is just a physical representation of a cluttered mind, if you clean it, if you put things in order, it does help your mental clarity. Yeah. No question. Yeah, and I, I'm a I'm a big fan of um, Jordan Peterson myself. So yeah, I, I um, yeah I, I like his work, and I, I do think that that's that's a really um, good good point of his. Yeah. Um, so my kind of final question before the the, the final three is, uh, what are your goals through the hypnotherapy work? Like, what what is it you're trying to achieve? I want to help more athletes that are maybe high level amateurs and professionals to achieve more, to get that promotion to the next league up, to win that title, to turn professional if they are a high level amateur, but they want to go pro. I want to be able to use my own experience competitively in martial arts alongside the, um, the hypnotherapy work that I've done and the courses that I've done, the qualifications I have. I want to be able to amalgamate the two with my clients to help them to get to that next level in their sport because it's so important what's going on between your ears mm. and i've been been living proof of that you know i've been through the gamut of it i've had a lot of success with competition i've had a lot of failure with competition and a lot of challenges to to my mental health and my ego and stuff and and had to overcome that and so I want to help these athletes to get to that next level because I, I understand the pressures that go along with it. Trying to be the best in whatever sport you're in. It's, it's very challenging. And yeah, I think I have intimate experience and knowledge of that. And so I'm very passionate about helping people to, to get there and uh, hopefully avoid some of the pitfalls that I've been through myself. That's such a good thing to have that that goal in mind and have that that's what keeps you going doesn't it even on the on the days where you don't feel like it um you know it's having that that why i suppose is the is the classic phrase isn't it so um i ask everyone who comes on this podcast three final questions that aren't really questions because none of them have a question mark at the end but um are you ready for the first one i'm ready okay question not question number one is a person real or fictional who inspires you bruce lee bruce lee uh is first and foremost and then muhammad ali would be would be another one um yeah just from an athletic perspective obviously and the the whole combat sport thing but then also mentally and the beliefs and the values that they both um had and how they transcended their respective fields, mm. you know, and the, the struggles that they went through as well. Obviously, both of them suffered racial abuse in, in different ways. And so overcoming that on its own is a tremendous hurdle anyway, but then also with the sport and, and the, the martial, their respective martial arts, because boxing is a martial art, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a fighting art is what it is. You know, Bruce Lee was, well, he, he struggled with 
other martial arts school owners when he moved to the US because he, he would teach all comers. It didn't matter what your race, what your age, you know, your gender. None of that mattered. He just wanted to teach Kung Fu. But a lot of people thought that it shouldn't be taught to Westerners. You know, a lot of the Asian community were on his back about that. And, and he went through a lot of hardship, you know, physically with that, getting into fights and all sorts of stuff. And then Muhammad Ali on the flip side of it, obviously refusing his national service and getting banged up in prison, you know, and, you know, this guy was the world heavyweight champion and one of the most charismatic athletes ever, you know, and truly transcended the sport into being a superstar because of what he stood up for in addition to his personality and his beliefs. And so, yeah, those two guys are probably, probably on a par with me. Bruce probably outweighs Ali just a little bit because he was the first one, but, uh, yeah, those two, definitely. Yeah, I agree 100%. They're both very awesome individuals. Um, question that's not question two is, a phase in your life that you didn't like at the time, but now looking back, you know positives came from it? My time at university. Mm. Um, that That's uh, the key thing there. As I said, good, good things came out of it. I made some good mates that I'm still in touch with now. I got my degree, didn't do as well as I should have done, but it is what it is. It's um, so those positives came out, you know, immediately, but in terms of how unhappy I was at the time, mm. and I just really did not want to be there. That was not good at the time, but now I can look back on it as a necessary experience and a, and a learning and growing experience. Because who knows, if things had gone differently, I might not be doing what I'm doing now. You know, um, I might not know what I know now in terms of myself and also the work I've done with clients. So, yeah, that, that would be uh, my answer to that one. Yeah, and that, that's my, it's my personal favorite of the three because I think people listening at home who might be going through a similar thing are struggling at uni and... And that you know, they might hear you say that and and realize that actually you know maybe some positive things will come out of it because yeah I think I think a lot of people especially with the men mental health issues um you know the people who get to the other side you know we, people often say it was really shit but it I did get this from it I did get this from it I got that internal perspective you know I, I learned more about my about myself and I developed these values and you know I think one one thing that I think comes from um people who have mental health struggles is that self-awareness so many people who have had the struggles and have had to deal with them you have to learn about yourself in order to, to kind of undo them so um people they always seem to have so much more self-awareness yeah absolutely couldn't agree more fantastic and the final one is a phrase to live by okay so again i have two one of the ones i said earlier comparison is the thief of joy that one is uh, is a great one to live by. And if you catch yourself comparing yourself to another person, um, just, just check yourself first. Um, because chances are, if you're better than that person or better at that thing, there's going to be someone at somewhere else that's, that's better at that or better than, better than you are in whatever field that is. So, but typically because we are negatively uh, biased, biologically we'll look for the people that are better mm. and that will just make us feel shit and so only compare yourself to the you of yesterday um the other the other phrase and it's kind of in the same vein as what we've been discussing is this too shall pass so anytime you're going through some shit yep yeah, it's really shit at the time hate it don't want to be going through it, but it will pass. Night always follows day. And on the flip side, when you're going through really good stuff, don't get lulled into the false sense of security that it's going to last forever like that because shit happens. Mm. And it might get flicked on its head in an instant. It might not. It might just be something small that detracts from it, but that also will pass. Yeah. And so... All you can do is just be the best you can be in the present moment because that's all we've got. 
you know, the past is history, the future's a mystery, the present's a gift. So just do the best you can in the moment, you in this moment right now that we're living in. And yeah. That's a uh, quote from Kung Fu Panda. Am, am I right? I think you are, yeah. Yeah. It, Mr. Um, yeah, I don't remember picking it up there, but Ma- I think I did. Master, Something what is like, his name? What's like. his name? Is the it's the turtle? Because I, I say it all the time as well, and I can't. What's his name? Master Master Fushu? Is that right, or is that is that, is that I think that's the red panda. There's the it's the turtle one. Anyway, very good quote. Um, and uh, it's actually funny you you mentioned this too. Shall pass. I'll once once we've ended the podcast, I'll show you. But literally, like three feet away from me, there's a frame that I have that has that that phrase on it. Um, and I kind of, uh, my friend Rob got it for me. Um, shout out to Rob. Um, but yeah, awesome. Thank you. Um, Stuart, I hope you've had a good time. Thank you so much for, for coming on the pod. Oh, it's, it's been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been great. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. It's been, it's, it's, I love having people on who, um, do something that I know literally nothing about. Cause it's, it's, I think it's good for, you know, I get to learn about it as well, as well as the listeners. And, you know, I feel like I'm more likely to ask the questions everyone else is thinking because, you know, I'm learning it alongside them. So yeah, it's great to have you on and thank you for, Absolutely. for sharing everything with us. Um, everybody listening at home, thank you so much again for making it through this podcast and I hope to see you at the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out mayaminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there. And we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.